0: Good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you. And if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Luke. We are plugging through the book of Luke together. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and a very famous story that uh, many, whether you have grown up in the church or not, might have heard of. It's known by some as the parable or story of the Good Samaritan. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and if you don't have a Bible, excuse me, I got a little cold, so forgive me. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one at the end of a row, and you can ask your neighbor for it, and we would love, if you don't own one, for that to be our gift to you. The Word of God is precious, and we love the God of the Word, and we love His Word. So we are in Luke chapter 10, Um, and as you're turning there, just a couple of announcements, some things happening at the church. Uh, One is that we are going to have a marriage seminar coming up on August the 25th. Now uh, this is going to be entitled, The Joy of Staying Married, Uh, The Importance of Endurance in uh, Relationships and the Joy that is Found Therein. So it applies to Married couples, it applies to those who are struggling and enduring in relationships. It will be specific towards marriage, but I think everyone will be able to benefit. So we encourage you to come. We need you to RSVP, both for child care, if that applies to you, and to attend so that we have enough food. If you have the app, the TCC app, you can go at Life at TCC, and there's an RSVP form there. If not, you can just send an email to us at info at And just tell us that you want to come to that marriage seminar on August the 25th. One last announcement I want to give is next week is our KTC, that's Kids Treasuring Christ Promotion Sunday, and that's when everybody kind of moves up in their classes, and it's also when our workers who have really had uh, the summer off um, are kind of plugging back in. Well, we have two spots, only two, which is an amazing gift of grace. That we need to fill if we're not able to fill those slots, we'll only be able to do ages seven to 10 in one service. That'll be the nine o'clock hour. So what I'm asking for is two individuals that might be interested or willing to take a teaching role in the seven to tens. All the curriculum and everything is planned out for you. You just have to take the sheet and do it. But anyone who might be interested in serving our seven to 10-year olds, it'll be one month on, one month off is our rotation, and do it from now until May. so. Uh, If that is of interest to you, we would love uh, to have you. Please contact uh, KTC at TCCRaleigh.org or you can just use the info email and we will uh, get all of that information to the appropriate people. Now, let's dive into God's Word together. Luke chapter 10. and I'm going to read the whole of the story together. The Word of God says this and behold a lawyer stood up to put him that is Jesus to the test saying teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and he said to him what is written in the law how do you read it and he answered you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus told him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, then you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, you have shown us such great mercy. May we stand in awe as recipients of undeserved favor. And may we give it away as you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mercy. <clears throat> what is mercy? Mercy is meeting felt needs of someone who is unable or miserable in their state through deeds. Mercy is meeting felt needs of someone who is unable to help themselves who is in a miserable state and doing, meeting those needs through deeds. Several months ago, it was Mother's Day weekend. Mother's Day weekend is always a time when we get to especially dote upon my wife and uh, thank her for all of the grace that God has poured into her life and into our life through her. So Mother's Day weekend, we had a plan. We were going out to eat together. Well, the Thursday before Mother's Day and the Friday before Mother's Day, for various reasons in the life of the church body and in our own family, we found ourselves in the emergency room twice, on Thursday and Friday. And some of those things carried over into a full day of Saturday events, of just trying to love and care for people. Well, it was that evening that we went out to go eat, and when we went to go eat, we Loved it. We were with my parents, so we were able to kind of kill two birds with one stone or bless two women with one meal, and so we went and we ate together, and we had a wonderful time. Well, later that evening, about 7 o'clock, my wife started not feeling so good, and what persisted from there was what uh, Brian Regan might call, everything on my inside wanted to come outside. My wife was sick, and she got so dehydrated that at 11:45 in the evening, we had to go to the emergency room. Now, make sure you understand the scene. This is Mother's Day. This is my gift to her: sickness. And you have to also understand that because we had been really intensely involved in um, the emergency room events prior to, I had not written my sermon yet. So Thursday, Friday is my sermon day. If All that fails, and I have to call an audible. I'll work on the little on Saturday. Well, all of that was soaked up. So I had spent two hours on my sermon, which is not what I spend, normally 8 to 12. And so as we were thinking about that, I'm thinking, okay, well, we're headed to the emergency room, and I've got a half-baked sermon. We'll see how it rolls. (laughs) So we come out of our subdivision, and as we come out of our subdivision, 1145 at night, Bumper-to-bumper traffic in both directions. Why is this? Well, because we live right near Walnut Creek Amphitheater in Southeast Raleigh. Concert had just let out of Migos, and there were people everywhere. My wife, at this point, is not in the best of spirits. She is like, get me to the emergency room. She is completely dehydrated. So she's like, roll down the windows, like, get me, get me to the hospital. Get me there. And so she's yelling out the window. And so I put the uh, emergency flashers on. We get in the middle lane, and then we go down the road, and we're at a standstill because what is a two-lane road with a turn lane is now four lanes of cars stuck, and I can't do anything. And she's like, tell them to move. Get me to the hospital. And so I just, I can't do it. So anyway, so we're working at it. Finally, we get to the hospital. We zip past all these other cars. We show up at the hospital, and we run into the hospital, and we check her in, and as the nurse is there, Uh, trying to take her temperature, my wife says, you can't put anything in my mouth. I can't do this. And so she's just sick. And the guy says, you have to stop pushing the thermometer out of your mouth. You have to stop. He says, we can't move forward unless you let me take your temperature. She's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Just give me IV meds. Well, what you need to know about my wife is she's very medically inclined, which means she knows medicine stuff, and she knows her body. She's the one that was told with our second child she was not in labor and she needed to come home, but she was in labor and she insisted on it, and so that was a whole drama in and of itself. So we were there. Finally, they ushered us back to a room where she got IV fluids, and I'm sitting there next to the bed. We're at 2 a.m. in the morning now, and we're all about dead, so I'm sleeping on the bed like this, and Dana, this is how big her heart is, honey, honey, you got to preach in the morning. Do you want to lay here in the bed? Can you imagine? I'm the one that's perfectly well. She's the one that's half dead. And I lay in the bed all sprawled out like a king, and she's over there on this chair like like this. (laughs) That would be really cool, right? So I decided not to do that, and I just tried to sleep like this. And so while we were doing that, finally we got ushered into, you know, all these rooms with multiple curtains and a lot of people around you. And so we're in there, and all of a sudden you hear at the distance, you hear this guy just yelling at the top of his lungs. And just moaning, screaming. And then he said some things that were not appropriate for a PG audience. And so he was just in crazy pain. And so finally my wife started feeling better and it was just all the drama around us. And they told us that it looked to be just either a bad virus or something like that. So they said, you're going to be okay and we'll send you home in just a little bit. We want to do an ultrasound in order to make sure that you don't have any major things going on. So she said, honey, I'm okay now. Would you just go home? You need to get at least a little bit of sleep before you preach in the morning. So I said, okay, but call me when you're ready to come home because we only have five minutes away and I'll come and get you. So I go home, check on the kids because Elijah was a trooper. We put him on the couch and he was kind of the safeguard for the kids. Come lay on the couch and I take my phone. I put the ringer all the way up. I lay it on my chest and I grab my phone and I fall asleep. And the next thing I hear is Dana walking through the door. And I said, Hey, what are you doing? And she says, Are you okay? I said, Yes, what are you doing? And she said, Did you not hear your phone? And I said, What do you mean? And I looked, three missed calls, 14 texts. And she said, I said, How'd you get here? She says, I took Uber. So Mother's Day weekend, (laughs) I was the hero of the moment, and about, she got home at five, so I got up and worked on a sermon, and the Lord uh, blessed us. The question I have here is this, which one of us extended mercy? The answer is, both of us. I was able to walk alongside my wife in a really hard time meeting felt needs for someone who was unable to help herself through deeds. At the same time, when she could have been, she said that the The people in the hospital were so angry at me for not answering my phone. They were like, this guy is a jerk. He does not, I cannot believe you're still with, you know, just all kinds of drama. And she was like, you need to get rid of this guy. He's a loser. And she's just like, no, he's great. You know, okay, whatever. And so I think I might have made that part up (laughs) just in my own little world. But They were like really telling her to give me down the road. And when she came in, she was so kind. I was unable to fix that situation. And she could have just been really hard. And instead, she met my felt need, which was forgiveness through a deed of saying, I forgive you. Which one extended mercy? Both of us did. And this is what Jesus requires of every single person. What is shocking about the story of the Good Samaritan is that mercy is not optional for the Christian. Mercy is not optional for the Christian. What he hones in on in this story is the necessity of mercy. The necessity of mercy. And where do I get that? Listen to the punchline. Read verse 37 with me. Let's read it out loud together. He said, the one who showed him what? Mercy. And here's the command. And Jesus said to him, say this with me, you go and do likewise. Do you hear that? The punchline is, if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you must go and do likewise. You must extend mercy. And so the lawyer is now asking a question of who is my neighbor? And Jesus flips it around to not who is your neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? And those are the two questions that we're going to answer today. We're going to look at who is my neighbor and how do I love my neighbor? But when we begin to talk about the issues of mercy... You cannot first start talking about what you must do. You must first start talking about who you love. Who you love. Because there is a necessity under the necessity of mercy. There's a necessity under the necessity of mercy. And this is where the lawyer answers rightly when Jesus says this. So you get the story. The lawyer stood up. To put Jesus to a test. That's what lawyers are good at, trying to win an argument. And he said, Teacher, verse 25, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus wanted him to say it out loud. Jesus could have answered it, right? He says, Well, what do you think it says? What's the law say? You're a lawyer, this is your job. And he says this, verse 27 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that's exactly right. Now you go and do that and you'll have eternal life. The lawyer then begins to go immediately to defend his life. To say, I've done a good job at this. But he's concerned that he might not have loved everyone. And so... He wants to stack up his good deeds and say, well, I've loved this person and I've been kind to this person and that's enough. As if, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he had in the bag. When it comes to mercy, there is a necessity under the necessity of mercy. And it is the admission of the impossibility that apart from God, You can love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And apart from God, you could love your neighbor as yourself. It is desperation. It is believing that you are miserable, that you are, apart from him, you are unable. And so the context pushes us to understand that the necessity of eternal life is an impossible command. Love. Love God. Make that happen right now in your heart. Go. Make it happen. Make the well of love get really broad and really deep and really expansive for Jesus right now. Will it to be? Can you do that? No way. It is a supernatural invasion of the living God into a hard heart that were it left to itself, would choose itself every single time. It is the belief that Jesus must invade me and change me or else I will never love him or anyone else above myself. The lawyer was running to deeds first when the essence of eternal life is the desperation of, oh God, make me one who loves you. It was this week as I was reflecting back from a trip that we took to Chicago this a week ago, and as I was trying to enter into the upcoming week, that I really felt kind of overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with a lot that's going on, a lot to process in the past, and a lot to deal with in the present. And the Lord took me back to a passage that had strengthened me when I was on sabbatical almost a year ago now. In Psalm 131. In Psalm 131, I read this. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And God began to take His word. And began to wash over my heart. And I began to confess. I began to confess that I was trying to manage everything on my own shoulders and my own strength. I began to confess that I was trying to set my mind on things too high for me. Trying to solve things that I couldn't solve. I was trying to be places for people that I couldn't be. I was trying to fix things that I wasn't meant to fix. And just as there's a pain between... A weaned child and its mom. This, the child has to be convinced that the mom is going to provide for this child apart from what the child has known all of its life. It's in some sense a sense of suffering. It's a sense of identifying that I can't, I've got to fully trust my mom even though everything is changing around me. And this passage began to breathe over me by the Spirit of God that I can fully trust my God. In whatever comes my way. I can fully trust him. I can be confident in him. That he is carrying me. And that only came through a time of stillness before him. With word open. And asking him to fix my wrecked heart. And what God began to do. Was he began to bring scripture to mind. After scripture to mind. That he's never given me a stone. When I've asked for bread. I sure have felt like it at times. But only to look back in hindsight to realize it wasn't a stone at all. He was just saying, wait. Or he was just giving me something that it wasn't the absence of pain and it wasn't the absence of trial, but it was the presence of him through it all. It was bread, not a stone. And I'm telling you, That before we will ever understand what mercy is, and before we will ever be able to extend it, we must be a people who are about the necessity under the necessity of mercy. And that is the necessity of stillness before the living God. It is not rocket science, but it is the hardest thing to do. Because if the devil can uproot your time with Jesus, he will shift you away ever so slowly into temptation, into selfishness, into self-focus, into anger, into anxiety. And you'll lose sight of the joy of the humble walk of being a mercy giver. So the context here is that we must be a people who understand that eternal life hinges upon, I love God, and in all my mess, I love Him, and I want to spend time with Him. And it is in that fertile soil, not of perfection, but of desperation, that the flower of mercy extending grows. And so, we need to also see that the context is not just the whole Bible preaches for us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the danger of reading the Good Samaritan passage in its isolation is to miss I think the broader connection between that passage and all the things that are happening around it. Okay? So here might be the punchline if we're understanding the context. The context is we are to be and to make disciples with a priority of love for Christ. That's what I just articulated. But also with an intentionality of word and merciful deeds. Not just proclaiming and not just mercy deeds, but word and merciful deeds. This is what it means to be and to make followers of Jesus. Our role as a church is simple, that we are to be and make disciples. And the context of Luke chapter 10 is replete with this emphasis. If you remember, Luke chapter 9 verse 23 says this, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and what? Follow me. That's the language of disciple making. A disciple is one who follows the leader. Jesus is the leader. It's like a good game of Simon says. Whatever he says you want to do, exactly as he says to do it. And then... In Luke chapter 10, verse 9, not only does he say you must be a disciple who follows, but then you should go out and the 72 are sent out. And here's what it says about the 72. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, here's the command. Heal the sick in that town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Do you see what it looked like for them to be followers of Jesus? It was to make followers of Jesus through deeds of mercy, heal, and through proclamation that the Messiah has come and his kingdom is here. Darkness is breaking into light. Not either or, but both and. It always has been and it always will be. Some people try to say when we talk about the issues of mercy that no, we should just let our deeds do the talking and we never use words. The Bible says that is garbage. The power of God is in His Word. We must be gospel proclaimers. But His words must be accompanied by a life of mercy that meets people in their felt needs. There's a necessity of being deed-doers, mercy-extenders. And so, the context that brings us to the Good Samaritan passage is a context that has already said, you're to be a follower of Jesus, you're to make followers of Jesus, and that means you proclaim and you do deeds of mercy to those who cannot help themselves. Mercy is doing something to someone who cannot help themselves. That's why it's used regularly in the context of caring for what we might call the poor, because it is a pronouncement of inability. Now, we just got back from Chicago. A team of 16 of us went to Chicago for a week. It was hard for me as I woke up this morning and made a cup of coffee. I realized last week at this time, I made a cup of coffee in Chicago. That was pretty wild for me to kind of think we were just there a week ago. But while we were in Chicago, you just began to see God do an amazing work in the lives of our Team. God was making us followers of Jesus who wanted to make disciples. And while we were in Chicago, here's a few pictures. So, we uh, this is what we saw, and so we decided to take our picture in the large bean. It's actually called a gateway cloud. But it looks like a large bean. So we call it a large bean. And I'm the only one that you can't really see because my phone's in front of my face. But everybody else is there. The only people who came later after this were Esther and Emmanuel Gaines. So they joined us later. Next picture. But this is uh, one picture of our group. I I was driving, and we stopped, and I took it like this. So we stopped, okay? Um, And then we also got to spend some time at the end of the trip, next picture, to um, be with Craig and Elizabeth. Uh, this guy up here in the ICI shirt is one of their church members, and there's a guy in a red shirt. You can barely see his arm. That's Hunter Long, who used to be a deacon here, and we sent him out, and then right here is Craig's bald head, and so we were um, spending some time. Go back to the other, yeah, just for a second, and so we were able to pray and, for their church in Humboldt Park, um, and just to pray over them and to pray for Craig and Elizabeth, and it was just a sweet time of um, ministering with them and to them. And here are a few things that some of our people said as they came away. I asked them to just give me some feedback on what was some things God taught you. My wife said this. One thing I loved about Chicago was waking up each morning with a mindset of living scent. It has reminded me to slow down and to take more time to talk with people about their lives. It's a reminder to me that there are gospel opportunities around me every single day. The message of slow down, and every day I'm a sent one with the gospel. Esther Gaines shared this. She said, leading people to Christ's healing will come when we go deep with people and ask, what is your story? this is how we prepped one another we we practiced before we left on sharing our story understanding god's story and how does our story collide with his story it's the ability to kind of understand different aspects of our story and how does it connect with the gospel story and so she began to see that this is what she says with her words esther the beauty of just listening and getting into people's lives Bearing that cross because it will be uncomfortable but eternally beneficial. To stop and to just ask, what's your story? Tell me about your life and just be a listener. And then develop the skill of how their story connects to God's gospel story. Here's an example. This uh, next guy now. This guy. I took a picture of his back for a reason. He is, we were here at a place called the Healing Corner. The Healing Corner was a place where in the community in Humboldt Park, there had been shootings regularly throughout the the city. And where someone had died, the Healing Corner will go and they will just be um, a presence of of love. They're not a Christian group. They just try to feed and provide counseling, etc. Well, Craig is uh, making relationships with them so that we can get the gospel into that moment of kindness. And so we were able to serve Uh, there uh, in this area uh, with the healing corner to just try to uh, be a blessing and to be a bridge between Craig's church and this organization. So as we were there, I ended up talking to this guy. I'll call him Jerome. Um, It's not his real name, but to protect him. And I took a picture of his back rather than his face uh, because he has just gotten out of prison in December and uh, he began to just open up. I asked him about his story. And he just began to share. It was like someone had never really stopped to listen. And he said, I grew up in a horrible environment. He said, I grew up and at age seven, my dad told me to come with him and that we were going to go and get some stuff. And we would go and next thing I know is my dad is bringing a TV out of an apartment and he asked me to help him. So I help him. And he says, about Five years later, I have 140 counts of uh, theft on my record. And all I was doing was seeking to help my dad, just be with my dad. Then his dad left the scene. Absentee fathers are common in our community and in theirs. And so he went to the next best thing, some type of family. His mom had kind of distanced herself as well. He went into the gang situation found family in the gang he became a designated shooter for gangs Dang, gangs will send out individuals to carry out their, um, their punishment upon others in order to claim territory or whatnot. and he was a designated shooter he hadn't been caught for those crimes but had been caught for other things he just got out of prison and he was like I can't live like this anymore and I'm just trying to make myself better Began to hear his story. He said, I felt like I have no way out. And immediately my mind was like, Christ promises a way out. And he says, I'm just looking for community. Somebody to come alongside me because I've got to have positive influence. And if not, I'm going to go right back where I was. And I was like, I know a community. A community that God has ordained for your heart. And then he talked about shame feeling bad about doing those things, but not knowing how to do anything else. The only way to make money was to sell drugs. He says, if I don't get a job soon, I'm going to have to keep doing that. Well, the hard part is, is he's got tats that reflect his gang initiation. He has tears that are on his face. Each tear represents a person that he has killed. And so if you don't get rid of those tattoos, you get zero job. He doesn't have enough money to get rid of those tattoos. And I was like, I know a God who deals with shame. And he was like, I just need a new start and I don't know how. I know a God whose story intersects your story and allows new starts. He was exploring other religions and we began to talk about the other religions that he was exploring and how Jesus' way was the only way and how his way is more beautiful. At every point, there was a gospel insertion but I mostly just listened. And the beautiful thing was, Craig told us this. He says, I have been here over a year walking in Humboldt Park, and he said there have been more people giving phone numbers and saying, please contact me. I want to come to this church in this week than I have had all year long. Not just at the Healing Corner, but as we were going out into the community and et cetera. And it was a group of people who left here with the sole aim of saying there are people who do not know the gospel of Christ, who are in a miserable state because of crime or because of poverty, and we were able to step in. This is what Jesus is pressing in upon us, is that to be a disciple of Christ and to make disciples of Christ, we must be mercy extenders. It's not optional. The whole parable ends with who was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Now command, go and do it. So real quickly, I just want to address two questions. The lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives an answer to the question, how can you be a neighbor? So I want to just Try to follow the lawyer's train of thought, and then I want to go where Jesus goes. The necessity of mercy is inescapable, so we must ask, Who do we extend mercy to? That was the question that the lawyer was asking. The lawyer was like, Who do I extend mercy to? He was asking it to try to get himself off the hook. I've got a busy schedule, I'm a Jew, so I have been really good with the people that I hang out with, the Jewish people. Who is my neighbor trying to justify things? Well, the story begins like this. A man, verse 30, was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this was a really steep road. A steep road that in the dark is almost like a back dark alley. It was regularly known for robbery and thievery, and it was a dangerous place. And so when we read this about the priest and the Levi, and we're tempted to be like, those jerks, I can't believe they did that. I would never do. We might be careful because, let's understand the context. If the Jericho Road was one of fear... You need to understand if you were in a back alley and you saw someone who was laying half dead, the thought might be, well, they're waiting for me too. So what I'll do is I'll run off and I'll find some good official who can come back and solve the situation because I'm afraid. The sometimes excuse of safety. Fuzzy line between safety and wisdom. And then, what else is interesting is you have a priest and a Levite. Their jobs were to be the people who cared for the poor. And yet, ironically, they're the ones who passed over the man who had been abused. And so what do we find is that If the Levite were to touch this man, he didn't know if he was dead or not. If he were to touch him, he would be unclean for seven days and not be able to do his priestly duties. And so the priest would then have to wait seven days. And so you might say, I have a higher calling. Or you could say, I have a busy schedule and that doesn't allow me to intervene at this time. The Levite was the one who was in charge of giving alms to the poor. That was his job. And yet, the picture here is that he didn't stop to extend mercy. This is why Jesus really presses, it is better that you give mercy than do sacrifice, right? Have you heard that before? Quoting an Old Testament passage, Jesus will say, it's better to extend mercy than to just sacrifice. The point is not religious sacrifice. The point is love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, which means you must be a mercy extender. But then things get really inflammatory because he didn't choose another Jew to be the hero of the story. He chose an enemy and a non-Jew to be the hero of the story. And so I think what we must begin to see that Jesus is laying out is when the lawyer is trying to get off the hook with who is my neighbor, who is the neighbor? Well, at first we must say, my neighbor is my multi-ethnic neighbor. That extending mercy and being filled with neighbor love is a cross-cultural love. It's why at the end of the book of Luke, when Jesus tells his disciples to proclaim the gospel, he says, proclaim it to the ends of the earth. Go to all the peoples. Because the message is the gospel's too precious of a thing to be kept with just one people group. It must extend to the ends of the earth. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, and in chapter 3, that the goodness and mystery of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles come together as one new man, one new family, together. This lawyer was trying to get off the hook. Well, I've been kind to those who are like me, but now the neighbor love is extended to it must be across cultures. And then Paul indicts Peter for being a racist. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when his Jewish friends came, Peter began to shrink back, and he went over to eat with just his Jewish friends. And Paul rebuked him, and here's Paul's rebuke. He says, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... Racism and a lack of intentionality with your cross cultural neighbors is out of step with the gospel. Paul then indicted Peter, also known as Cephas, before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be saved, blacks and Hispanics and Asians don't have to become culturally white to be saved, or to worship the living God. Christ died for a multi-ethnic community. Jesus shocks the listener with neighbor love is cross-cultural love. Tim Keller says this, Jesus is trying to prevent a Jew from confining his ministry of loving deeds to his own racial religious community. He defines neighbor as anyone at all, relative, friend, acquaintance, stranger, enemy, whose need we see. Not all men are brothers, but every man is my neighbor. This is the undoing of the lawyer's argument. I'm hoping that neighbor love is very narrow so that I can get myself off the hook with my good deeds. Jesus' answer is, no way, no how. The enemy, the alien, the stranger, the immigrant, the cross-cultural, multi-ethnic neighbor, these are my neighbors. What else does this teach us about who the neighbor is? It's not only my multi-ethnic neighbor, it's my near neighbor. It says several times in the passage that as they were going... It says, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he cared for him. It was this sense that the others were indicted because as they were going, they crossed to the other side rather than drawing near to the one in need. Who is the neighbor? It is a near neighbor. As Brian Lorette says, proximity breeds empathy. Distance breeds skepticism. The neighbor is a near neighbor. That is, there is a responsibility, a unique one, for us to love and meet mercy needs where we are. You must think about your neighborhood. And when needs of mercy arise in your neighborhood, and you know about them, The generosity of Christ to you is meant to extend through you in various degrees and shapes and sizes and forms. I'm not telling you exactly what that looks like, but proximity defines in part who our neighbor is. And that's why we as a church are saying we want to intentionally locate ourselves in a low-income, diverse community Because when we gather, we want to be not only those who treasure Christ together, but who live sent lives of mercy. So we do it in our neighborhoods, but we cannot have blind eyes to the hurting in our city. We must have a keen eye, according to Jesus, to those who are hurting, to the poor. Now that can feel really overwhelming. Because the more you begin to see needs, the more needs you begin to see. The more you begin to look for them, the more they grow exponentially. You you know the illustration well. It is if you're looking for a certain type of vehicle, all of a sudden that's the only vehicle you see. If you're looking for a certain type of house, all of a sudden you see these certain types of houses. You see houses for sale that you never knew were for sale. This is how it works. And when you are looking... To be a mercy extender, you will see, and God will bring, more opportunities for mercy. Craig Priestley, who's, uh, he and Elizabeth, we sent him out to Chicago. We, were, we went to try to bless them and serve them and also bless their church. The Saturday and Sunday, we were there. 21 people were shot. And three died. One was in Humboldt Park, where we were all week long, only two and a half blocks from where we worshiped Sunday morning. And we talked with Craig, where Chicago has some pockets of poverty, but poverty is really not the strong issue. The issue is the the volume of crime. So it's than crime leading to economic poverty, right? So it's not only poverty, but all the streams that lead towards the financial difficulty. The prison system, struggle with immigration, the issue of uh, fatherless homes and single parents, and all of this crime that's happening when someone dies and they're the primary breadwinner. And you just ask Craig, how in the world are you dealing with all of this? And he says, I would be crushed if I didn't think about one life at a time. And you will be crushed in this pursuit of loving your neighbor with deeds of mercy if you don't think about the joy and the privilege of one life at a time. When we are mercy extenders, we have to acknowledge our limits. When Jesus was healing over here, he was not healing over here because he was human. And he had limits as a human. He was fully God, yet fully man. And we must, too, understand our limits. You are not the Savior, Jesus is. But do you see what Jesus is pushing us towards? Get eyes that look to be mercy extenders. We must look for it. But it's one life at a time. And then together, as a church family one life at a time becomes an army of love and God gets a name of glory when his people are out meeting felt needs among those who are unable through deeds. Mercy. Proximity matters. How do you decide kind of about this issue of proximity? I think you need to understand the Bible is pretty clear about the priority of extending mercy to those who are impoverished or who are in great need in the church family. There's actually a priority in the Scriptures and many times when care for the poor is being talked about, it is care for those who are among you. Brothers and sisters who love Christ. God actually has consequences for those who choose to reject Him. And some of those consequences for living licentious lives apart from Jesus is some of the signs of poverty that we find in our world. It does not mean that all who are impoverished are there simply because of personal sin. But it does say that there should be a stark contrast between this community of faith and the community outside. So when we think about what does it mean to be a mercy extender, we need to have ears open, eyes open on how to love one another. However, that doesn't mean love only here and don't love outside. Galatians chapter 6 solves this dilemma for us verse 10 when he says this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good, those are deeds of mercy. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You get it? We must be mercy extenders as a means of spreading the gospel to people who've never heard of Jesus, but we must have an especial eye towards the needs in our own body. And that's why we're sending a team to Turkey who is going to go overseas in order to try to care for the needs of our workers. But every time we send a team, they, the regularly the gospel is spread, especially in cross-cultural t- contexts, through mercy deeds, caring for orphans, meeting physical needs, those kind of things. So we are mercy extenders as we go. So who is my neighbor? Everyone. It's my multicultural neighbor. It's my near neighbor. And we need to have a keen eye towards Our church family, but deeds of mercy are meant to be extended to those who don't know Christ. So Jesus then answers, how do I love my neighbor? The question is not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? Well, I think the way we can be a neighbor is that we are mercy receivers, and therefore we should be mercy extenders. Let's just sit there for just a second. You'll know how to receive or to give mercy when you understand the mercy you've received. The more you reflect on your own sinful state, the more you are convinced that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, not just one moment when you pray to prayer at age seven, but every single hour of every single day, you are a sinner in need of a Savior, And the moment you begin to get numb to that fact is the moment that self righteousness begins to come in, which was the problem of the lawyer. I can lean on my deeds as a means of God accepting me. So many Christians are tempted with that vice. And it is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 they have forgotten. They have been cleansed of many sins and are blind. May we not be forgetful that God has been merciful to us. And that is the only reason we love Him. That's the only reason we're in this room. That's the only reason we would ever do a kind deed. It is the mercy of God. And so, as we have received mercy, it drains us of self-righteousness as we give mercy. But also, what is our state as mercy receivers? We are undeserving, right? So our mercy mirrors His mercy. So how did He give mercy? He gave it to the undeserving, which means we don't just give mercy to those that we deem wise who deserve mercy. That's very easy when we deal with care for the poor, when we deal with loving our neighbors in their, painful state. We try to decide and discern if they deserve it. And if they deserve it, then we give it. And if they don't, then we withhold it. Sometimes there is such mercy in withholding. However, don't make it be because you self-righteously decide they are undeserving. Make it be because they are rejecting Jesus and they're rejecting the help that you have persistently tried to give them but they have stiff armed we must be mercy extenders as Jesus has extended us mercy so serve the poor care for the needy not so that they become more selfish but less Tim Keller says this, although God's mercy comes without conditions, it does not precede without conditions. Which means he gives mercy unconditionally. But as you continue to meet needs, there are times when benchmarks are healthy. It's a good thing for people to take steps. It's empowerment. It's growth. It's good. These are the difficult conversations when it comes to loving my neighbor. How else does Jesus say we love our neighbor? It is through meeting felt needs of those who are unable through deeds. How do I love my neighbor? Look at how the Samaritan loved his neighbor. He went to him. He drew near. He bound up his wounds. He took care of his medical needs. Pouring on oil and wine. Kind of an antiseptic of sorts. Then he set him on his animal. He provided transportation for him. And he brought him to an inn. He took care of his lodging. And the next day, he put two denarii to take care of the man's debt. What does it look like to meet needs through deeds? It is to be a people characterized by generosity. To be a people who understand how much they have received and they give it away. They listen to people's stories and they meet needs where they are. You know the guy I was talking about who was a gang member and trying to get out? Well, what the Healing Corner has sought to do was provide a guy who was doing a tattoo removal um, nonprofit in order to help gang members get out so that they can get jobs. How did that start? It started through a relationship with someone who was hurting who couldn't get a job because he had tattoos on his face or she had tattoos on her face. And so they established that these tattoos were keeping them from getting jobs. And so... To meet that need, they established this tattoo removal nonprofit. I tell you this as I was talking to him about the power of the gospel to invade his story, there were times that he was glassy eyed. You ever been there? And there were times that he was engaged. I just kept telling the story, trusting that God would allow him to not be glassy eyed and and jump back in. But you know what really flipped the switch? Was when I brought Craig over. And I said, This is the pastor of the church that would love to walk alongside you. And Craig began to talk to him, and I said, He's got a need for a job. And Craig began to talk to him about some people who might be able to help him with a job. All of a sudden, he says, Thank you for this. I want to give you my number. I want to come to your church. Why is that? It's because meeting felt needs opens the heart, opens the door to get at the real need, which is your alienation from God and the shame that covers your heart. And so why does Jesus say mercy is a necessity? Why does he say, church, go and extend mercy? It is because it is how the gospel through word many times can get to the hard heart. When they see Christ in action, and then they can hear His powerful words over their ears, the combination makes disciples. So we have so many who have been going in confidence into our community. We had over 80 volunteers who came and loved on the church and this community through camp. We have some who've tried to extend that, and every Thursday evening, they're seeking to go to the Davy Street Apartments just right around the corner, and they're just playing games and hanging out and then telling a Bible story because they want to continue some of those relationships. There's one man who has a story of brokenness, and he tells his story, a story that ended him up in prison. But after he came out of prison, he was converted to Jesus Christ. And he says, I want to help those who are in the same state that I was in. And he began a sponsorship program in our local prison system where he can bring individuals to church with him who can get on a work release or on a community release. All because he had a burden from his story and he wanted his story to show God's story to a people who are hurting Do you hear people are creating creative ideas in order that their story might connect with other people's story so that God's story becomes the hero? There have been some who behind closed door who have been an advocate for a child for over 10 years, advocate at school, advocate in the court system, advocate with child protective services just because there was no advocate in the home for them. There have been many of you who have been friends to the fatherless. You've been surrogate sisters and brothers or moms or dads and just spent time with children who just needed to have a positive influence and someone care for them. Some of you are adoptive families and you have adopted children into your home. Be clear about this. The act of mercy was not just the getting them into your home, but it's the every moment by moment when you choose to love them over yourself. Adoption is not just a story that gets them into a home. It's a story that raises up a generation for Jesus. And many of you are part of that story as we parent together as a church family, as we disciple our kids in KTC. Mercy extenders, meeting needs through deeds. Countless others, I want to encourage you One life at a time, but look for it. Look for it. Don't ever skip the necessity of mercy. Don't ever skip the necessity under the necessity of mercy. And that is time with Jesus. So how do you take away from this? I want to press on your head. I want you to think this. Mercy is a necessity for all followers of Jesus Christ. I want to press on your heart. Drawing near to Christ is your greatest purpose. And as you do, he will birth a heart of generosity and mercy. And then I want to press on your hands and feet. Do what you do for Christ and not your fame. And do it one life at a time by extending deeds of mercy to felt needs. And together, we hope that Jesus looks beautiful because of how we love our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for loving us when we could not love ourselves to you. We couldn't fix ourselves. We could love ourselves, but we were broken. And we couldn't get rid of our shame and our guilt and our mess. And so God, I just ask that you would make us mercy extenders. I pray that you would help us. Help us to serve. Help us to care. Help us to think about how we can Reach out to others. And so, Father, please, as we reflect on this, I pray that, God, you would just help us to spend this time with you. I pray that, God, you would just help us to reflect and to meditate on what you are teaching us. May we be convinced that we must be mercy extenders. Would you give us relationships and help us to see what it looks like to pursue one life at a time? And so, God, I pray that you will help us. Help us in this moment. Help us in this moment to hear from you. As the music's playing, I just want us to spend a little bit of time in prayer. Asking for the Lord to do a work in our hearts. Spend this time asking God what the application looks like for you.